You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 34, The Road to Leoben. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time at the beginning of February, 1797. The city of Mantua had just surrendered to the French after nearly eight months of struggle. The fourth failed Austrian attempt to relieve the city had left their main field army in northern Italy completely shattered. Its commander, Joseph Alvinci, was fired, and the way was now clear for Napoleon to take his army over the Alps once again, into Austria itself. For the third time in less than a year, the Habsburgs were left scrambling to build a new field army to oppose Bonaparte. The Army of Italy was now only a few weeks' march away from Vienna. Stopping Napoleon had become the Imperial War Council's first priority. For this all-important mission, they recalled the most successful Habsburg commander from Germany, Archduke Charles, Duke of Teschen, prodigy of the Habsburg armies, a position he owed in large part to the good graces of his older brother, Emperor Francis II. But he was also a talented, forward-thinking soldier, who never gave his brother cause to regret the rapid promotions. Within a month of the fall of Mantua, Vienna had pulled together roughly 50,000 men for the Archduke's new army. However, they were of dubious quality, and many units had to travel from the far corners of the empire to concentrate in the Alps. On the French side, Napoleon's victory at Rivoli and the surrender of Mantua had completely changed the dynamic. For years, Bonaparte had argued to anyone who would listen that Italy was the soft underbelly of the Habsburg Empire and should be the main focus of France's strategic efforts. The Directory had been willing to entertain this notion to a degree, but had never fully embraced Napoleon's overall assessment of the situation. That had finally changed. Combined with the setbacks in Germany at the end of 1796, the Army of Italy's victories had finally brought Paris around to Napoleon's way of thinking. With northern Italy secured, there could no longer be any question that an attack across the Alps was France's best shot at victory. And so, at long last, the Army of Italy began to receive significant support from the government. Supplies and equipment flowed over the mountains from Nice. Over 20,000 men were pulled from the German front and sent to Italy. 
Napoleon's field army expanded from three divisions to five, and nearly doubled in total manpower. These reinforcements were led by General Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, a 34-year-old lawyer's son from the Pyrenees. Bernadotte was a career soldier who had made a name for himself fighting under General Jourdan in Germany and the Netherlands. Today, he is known as one of the most fascinating and controversial figures to emerge from the revolutionary armies. If you ask me, he had the most remarkable career of the age after Napoleon himself. In many ways, Bernadotte and Napoleon were cut from the same cloth. Both men had languished in the old royal army, held back by their relatively humble origins, despite obvious talent and ambition. Like Napoleon, Bernadotte was a devotee of Enlightenment liberalism, and embraced the revolution. He too aligned himself with the Jacobins, which brought rapid promotion. Unlike Napoleon, Bernadotte's ego and ruthless ambition came with a malignant streak. He was undoubtedly a talented soldier, but his achievements and reputation never rose to equal his overinflated ego. In Bernadotte's mind, he was the best soldier in the Republican army, but never given a chance to prove it. This left him perpetually stewing over some perceived slight to his genius. Napoleon had many of the same traits, but by now he had learned to earn the position he felt he deserved by making himself indispensable. Perhaps Bernadotte was unlucky, or maybe he simply wasn't talented enough. Whichever the case, he came to be seen as a spiteful prima donna rather than a man of destiny. I won't dwell on Bernadotte too much, because he deserves his own episode at some point in the future. Suffice it to say, he and Napoleon instantly disliked one another. Ambitious men seldom get along, and Bernadotte's jealousy of his new commander was palpable. Even with this new friction at headquarters, the Army of Italy was finally entering the next round of fighting with an upper hand over their enemies. For the whole campaign, the Austrians had had the advantage in numbers, supplies, and equipment, and Napoleon had still managed to defeat three of their armies. Now, with the tables finally turned, there was no telling what he might achieve. Relentless as always, Napoleon planned to attack as soon as possible. He would give the Habsburgs no breathing space to regroup and build their new army. As soon as reinforcements arrived, the Army of Italy began their push into Austria. Archduke Charles was still scrambling to assemble his forces, but he put his faith in the rough terrain of the Austro-Italian borderlands. Not only were there the Alps themselves, but the whole region is crisscrossed by rivers that carry melted snow from the peaks down to the Po River and the Adriatic. The Archduke set up defensive lines along these rivers. His plan was to delay the French as long as possible before holding them off in the narrow mountain passes of the Alps. But, as we've seen in the past, Napoleon was more than capable of outflanking static, terrain-based defensive positions. The French offensive began in early March, only a month after the surrender of Mantua. They encountered light Austrian resistance, which fell back in a fighting retreat towards the Taliamento River, where Archduke Charles was preparing his first line of defense. Unfortunately for the Austrians, the French were upon them much sooner than Charles had anticipated. The Archduke postponed his confrontation with Bonaparte, 
leaving only a small rear guard on the Taliamento as the rest of the army fell back east. The Army of Italy defeated this rear guard on March 16th at the Battle of Valvasone, forcing their way over the river and inflicting heavy casualties. The next day, they were able to cut off the survivors entirely, forcing the entire rearguard of over 2,000 men to surrender. Archduke Charles had saved his army, but at a tremendous cost. There seemed to be no stopping the French. Every time the Austrian army approached a potential defensive position, they found Napoleon was too close for them to stop and form a proper line, and continued to fall back. The Army of Italy harried them all the way into the foothills of the Alps. On March 21st, the Austrians made their stand outside the village of Tarvisio, which commands the entrance to one of the main passes over the Alps. Archduke Charles deployed around 8,000 of his men to hold the town, but Massena's division managed to slip behind them and seized Tarvisio before the Austrians could get into position, trapping nearly the entire force. Nearly three full days of desperate combat ensued as the Habsburg troops fought to extricate themselves. More than half of them were killed, wounded, or captured, along with all of their supplies and artillery, at the cost of only around 1,000 French casualties. The two armies then endured an arduous crossing of the Alps. Even in late March, they encountered snow three feet deep. We can only imagine the sense of accomplishment when they descended into Austria proper. Bonaparte was now less than 400 kilometers from Vienna, or 240 miles, and the Archduke's nascent army had already taken a severe beating. The army of Italy had performed perfectly, but not everything was going according to plan. According to the grand strategy envisioned by director Lazare Carnot back in Paris, while Napoleon pushed towards Vienna, General Moreau and the Army of the Rhine were simultaneously to invade southwestern Germany. This would keep the Austrian forces on that front busy and prevent them from transferring troops to Archduke Charles, or swinging south to attack the Army of Italy's exposed northern flank. Bonaparte's thrust from Italy would be the main French offensive of 1797, but this secondary campaign along the Rhine was critical to ensuring his success. But by late March, as Napoleon entered Austria, Moreau still had yet to launch his offensive. In hindsight, it's hard to understand Moreau's passivity. Bonaparte was on the cusp of victory. All the Army of the Rhine had to do to support him was take the field. They didn't even have to actually engage the Austrians. Their mere presence on the far bank of the Rhine would be enough to tie down significant enemy forces. But Moreau was a far more cautious general than Napoleon, and his army was still reeling from their disastrous campaign of the previous fall. Bonaparte's plan to push through the still snowy Alpine passes looked incredibly difficult on paper. Moreau had no way of knowing the Army of Italy would experience such rapid success, and so the Army of the Rhine stayed put. Napoleon was furious. He wrote to Paris, quote, If the Rhine is not crossed very soon, it will be impossible for us to maintain our positions. I wait with impatience for the return of my courier to know whether or not it has been crossed. If Moreau can march in order to occupy the enemy and prevent him from turning my flank, the campaign could be successful and take us very far. 
If, on the contrary, the army of the Rhine are late in taking the offensive, I will find myself alone against all, obliged to retreat into Italy. End quote. As the army of Italy advanced, it got smaller. Men dropped out of their units from sickness or exhaustion. Others had to be assigned to pacify and consolidate their new conquests and maintain the longer and longer supply lines back to France. Each step forward made the advance more precarious and future success harder to achieve. At the end of March, the Army of Italy defeated the Austrians again in a skirmish at the town of Neumarkt and successfully occupied Klagenfurt, the first major city on the Austrian side of the Alps. They were now 300 kilometers, or 180 miles, from Vienna. The offensive was going incredibly well, but how long could it continue with Moreau sitting passive and so many soldiers pulled away from the main force? Despite their success, Napoleon worried he would be walking into disaster if he continued much further. He lamented, quote, If only I had 20,000 more men, I could reach Vienna in a fortnight. End quote. The safe course of action would have been to take a pause while he consolidated his gains, secured his lines of supply, brought up reinforcements, and waited for Moreau. But by now, you're all surely aware that taking the safe course of action was not in Napoleon's nature. Instead, Bonaparte concentrated all available French troops around Klagenfurt for an immediate thrust towards Vienna. That meant neglecting his flanks and temporarily abandoning his lines of supply. The army of Italy would live entirely off the land and resupply itself from the captured stores of the enemy. This was an enormous risk, more of a mad dash than an organized offensive. The army would be very vulnerable to counterattack or even envelopment, but if it paid off, it might win the war. As always, this was a calculated risk, not an act of recklessness. Archduke Charles was on the run, with an inferior force, still smarting from a serious defeat. The wider Austrian war effort was clearly collapsing. With the enemy in such a terrible state, giving them any breathing space to recover might have been the greater risk. If there was ever a time to act aggressively and decisively, it was now eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. On March 31st, Archduke Charles received a letter from Napoleon. Bonaparte proposed an immediate ceasefire as a preliminary to negotiations for a permanent peace treaty between France and Austria. In effect, it was an invitation to surrender. Quote, If the overtures which I have the honor to make can save the life of a single man, 
I shall be more proud of the civic crown I shall have deserved than of the sad glory which attaches to military successes. End quote. The civic crown is a reference to classical Rome. It was an honor bestowed for saving the lives of one's fellow citizens. Underneath the flowery words and high-minded allusions, Napoleon's letter was nothing more than a cheap bluff. He didn't want to risk his whole army on this mad dash for Vienna unless absolutely necessary. But Archduke Charles didn't blink. Receiving no response, Bonaparte made his final throw of the dice. At the beginning of April 1797, the Army of Italy advanced into the unknown towards Vienna, past their lines of supply, with their flanks exposed. The likeliest outcomes were total victory or complete disaster. Once again, Napoleon's gamble paid off. The Austrians were weaker than Napoleon had dared hope. The Army of Italy covered nearly 100 miles, or 150 kilometers, in six days, facing only scattered, disorganized opposition. Wealthy Viennese began leaving the city, including the women and children of the imperial court. A single determined counterattack could have thrown the whole advance into chaos, or even destroyed this isolated spearhead entirely. But Archduke Charles simply had no units capable of such a maneuver. The Austrian military had passed its breaking point, and was incapable of making even a last-ditch effort to defend the capital. On April 7th, the Army of Italy captured the town of Leoben, roughly halfway between Klagenfurt and Vienna. As night fell, ecstatic cheers rang out from the heights outside the town. French scouts on the peaks could see the lights of Vienna twinkling in the distance. They could see the end of the war. That same night, a small party of Austrians arrived at Leoben under a flag of truce. They were led by Count Maximilian von Merwelt, one of the most junior generals in the Austrian army. Neither Archduke Charles nor any of his senior subordinates wanted to undergo the indignity of this particular mission. Von Merwelt asked for a ceasefire. Napoleon granted it, but only temporarily long enough for the emperor to send diplomats from Vienna to hammer out something official. Bonaparte did not want to agree to anything indefinite without concessions from Austria. The next morning, all fighting on the Italian front ceased. So the big showdown with Archduke Charles von Teschen turned out to be a total anticlimax. The task of assembling a new army capable of opposing Napoleon had proved impossible with so few resources on such short notice. With such an inferior army, the young Archduke had little choice but to devote all his talents to avoiding the French rather than fighting them. As a result, there wasn't a single battle during this phase of the campaign in which both armies were fully engaged. Napoleon didn't rate his opponent very highly. In early March, Bonaparte assessed him this way, quote, up to the present, Archduke Charles has maneuvered worse than Beaulieu or Wurmser. He has committed faults at every step, and extremely big ones. They have cost him dear, and would have cost him more dearly still if his reputation had not imposed upon me to a certain extent. End quote. So, as someone today might put it, overrated. Archduke Charles is a divisive figure among military historians and this campaign is no exception. 
His performance has been criticized as timid and reactive. He also clearly put too much faith in natural defenses, like rivers and mountain passes, and had no idea how to react when Bonaparte sidestepped these barriers. On the other hand, he entered the campaign with almost no time to prepare. His army was not even fully assembled when Napoleon launched his offensive. Archduke Charles was left scrambling to build a defense against the best army in Europe out of nearly nothing, while his country's will to fight was crumbling. Yes, he made mistakes, but he certainly didn't have much to work with. On April 13th, representatives from the imperial court arrived at Leoben and officially informed Bonaparte of the emperor's desire to extend the armistice indefinitely and offered to open negotiations for a permanent peace between the Habsburg realms and the French Republic. On behalf of France, Napoleon accepted, and the talks began. Five days later, Bonaparte and his Austrian counterparts signed the Treaty of Leoben. This was still technically just a ceasefire, a preliminary to an official, permanent peace that would be negotiated in the future by the Austrian and French foreign ministries. But that was a mere detail for the politicians and diplomats compared to the headline. The war was over. Privately, Napoleon breathed a sigh of relief. The Austrians had sued for peace to spare Vienna from French conquest. Bonaparte had been careful to present this as inevitable, but in fact, he wasn't confident the army was up to the task. As he wrote in a letter to Paris, quote, If, contrary to my expectations, the negotiations do not succeed, I will be at a loss as to what course of action to take. End quote. He had pushed the Army of Italy to its limits once again and their efforts had finally brought an end to this horrible, bloody war. Tragically, the French forces in Germany finally began their long-delayed offensive in early April, and, due to the slow pace of communications, fought two major battles after the ceasefire was signed. Over 10,000 French and Austrian soldiers were killed or wounded after the official end of the war. But by late April, word was out, and it was finally all over. Great Britain still remained in the fight, but with the loss of her last continental ally, Britain's war against France was reduced to a low-intensity conflict, fought mostly on the high seas. The War of the First Coalition had lasted around five and a half years. When it began, King Louis was still on the throne, and Napoleon was an anonymous junior officer. The war had transformed Europe on every level, from high geopolitics to social changes that affected the lowliest serfs and peasants. Exact numbers are hard to pin down, but as many as 400,000 soldiers were killed or wounded in combat or died of illness or malnutrition on campaign. Hundreds of thousands of civilians were affected indirectly by disease, famine, or other war-related tragedies but I'll leave the broader consequences of the peace for another episode. The Treaty of Leoben also represents the end of the First Italian Campaign, which we've been following in detail since all the way back in episode 25. Bonaparte's tenure as commander-in-chief of the Army of Italy during the War of the First Coalition lasted about 13 months. The campaign itself lasted almost exactly one year, 
from the first significant engagement against General Beaulieu on April 10th, 1796, to the ceasefire at Leoben on April 7th, 1797. Now that we've finally come to the end, I'd like to spend the remainder of this episode wrapping up that discussion and seeing what conclusions we can draw from this remarkable period of Napoleon's career. So, why did we examine these events in such minute detail? I don't plan on following this same model in the future. If we covered every single maneuver and skirmish of every campaign of the Napoleonic Wars, the show would last a lifetime. But there are good reasons to focus on this particular campaign. For starters, it was simply an amazing achievement. Hardly anyone listened when Napoleon argued he could end the war by invading Austria through Italy. It wasn't until the very end that anyone in Paris came around and started delivering the type of support such an undertaking would require. Bonaparte sometimes exaggerated the army's destitution and lack of assistance from Paris to build his own legend. But there's no doubt that he was given very little to work with, and mostly made his own luck. Thirteen months after taking command of the Army of Italy, Napoleon had destroyed three superior enemy armies, and was at the gates of Vienna dictating terms. There were missteps and unforeseen hurdles along the way, but generally speaking, things played out the way Bonaparte had envisioned back at the Topographical Bureau in 1795. Even if you set aside the wider historical significance of the campaign, it still stands out as one of the great command performances of modern military history. The First Italian Campaign has been a part of the curricula at military academies and army staff colleges all over the world since the 19th century, and not just as part of some general humanities education. Modern militaries are still drawing practical lessons from the French conquest of northern Italy in 1796 and 7. If Napoleon Bonaparte completely vanished after the ceasefire was signed in 1797, this operation alone still would have been enough to secure him a place in the history books. So, the campaign deserves to be discussed on its own merits. It was also the best showcase of the new era of warfare ushered in by the Revolution, and it led directly to the end of the War of the First Coalition. But on top of all this intrinsic importance, the campaign also holds a special significance for our story. People often ask me, what made Napoleon such a great general? Almost anyone who has heard his name is aware he's regarded as a military genius. His lifetime record on the battlefield proves he was doing something right, but the number and names of his victories don't tell you much about what actually made him a great commander, any more than the Houston Astros win-loss record tells you how to win the World Series, or Star Wars box office receipts tell you how to direct a successful blockbuster. To understand Napoleon's success, you have to dig deeper, learn something about the troops he led, the enemies he fought, the officers he served with, and above all, his methods. This is the main reason I decided to tell the story of the First Italian Campaign in such detail. During his time in Italy in 1796 and 7, Napoleon developed and refined the methods he would use for the rest of his career. As his power grew and the scope of France's wars widened, Napoleon would command armies nearly ten times larger than the Army of Italy at its peak and infinitely better equipped, trained, and disciplined. 
he would lead them from the hills of Spain to the forests of Russia, and from the English Channel to the Sahara Desert, against enemies of every description. His approach to war grew more refined with experience, but it will remain fundamentally the same for the rest of our story. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Over the last nine episodes, we've watched Napoleon learn how to lead an army and prosecute a campaign. He started out a bit shaky in the spring of 1796, impatient, insecure, and too afraid of failure to personally lead his troops in combat. At the beginning of the campaign, he was unrecognizable as the man who would become the most celebrated general of modern history, but he was a quick study. By the time of the ceasefire, the Napoleon of legend is easily recognizable, completely transformed by his experiences fighting through Italy. He will continue to improve as a commander, but these will be refinements to the approach developed during this period, not complete reinventions. This campaign was the template for all that followed. So, now that we've made a close study of this pivotal campaign, how can we sum up Napoleon's approach to strategy? There are a few key aspects I'd like to highlight before we close the chapter on the First Italian Campaign. First, speed. Napoleon recognized very quickly that the citizen soldiers of the revolutionary armies possessed unique qualities the most important of which was their ability to make quick, agile maneuvers that seemed unimaginable to the armies of the old regimes. This was about much more than covering a little extra ground on the march. The speed of the revolutionary armies turned the conventional wisdom of strategy and tactics totally upside down. Just like in the realm of politics, Napoleon fully embraced the new paradigm, while his contemporaries were still struggling to understand it. Speed was the key factor that enabled almost every other innovative element of Napoleonic warfare. That brings me to the second aspect of Napoleon's approach that I'd like to highlight, concentration of forces. Bonaparte himself would later explain it this way, quote, The art of war consists in being always able, even with an inferior army, to have stronger forces than the enemy at the point of attack. End quote. Think about it. In almost every single operation of the campaign, even when the Austrian army was larger overall, Napoleon still managed to concentrate a larger proportion of his troops for the decisive engagement, often outnumbering the enemy on the battlefield itself. Almost all of Napoleon's strategies revolved around achieving these types of asymmetrical concentrations, and it was the speed of the French troops that made that possible. Third. Napoleon preferred to attack along an enemy flank or in the enemy rear whenever possible. This was the case both tactically, which is to say on the battlefield, and strategically, which is to say on the macro level. Think of generals at headquarters moving pins on a map. Obviously, this was also highly dependent on speed. It's a lot easier to sneak around your opponent's side or back when your troops can move three times faster. 
As we saw time and again over this last series of episodes, these types of maneuvers on a strategic level could be devastating. An 18th century army's line of communication back to its base of operations was its Achilles heel. Napoleon often sought to cut his opponent off, which was the quickest and easiest way to force a surrender. In other situations, he might seek merely to threaten the line of communication, thus forcing the enemy to defend their supply lines. Napoleon often used this strategy to lure the enemy into fighting in unfavorable conditions, or with only a fraction of their forces. Rear or flank attacks could also be decisive on the tactical level. Morale played a huge role in Napoleonic battles. Surprise attacks from an unexpected Surprise attacks from an unexpected direction terrorized and disheartened the enemy. Surprise attacks made the difference in a number of engagements during the First Italian Campaign, and would be one of Napoleon's signature tactics until the very end. That segues nicely into the fourth aspect I'd like to touch on, unpredictability. I harped on this quite a bit only two episodes ago, so I won't dwell on it too long, but it was a key factor, so it's worth underlining one more time. Napoleon was good at sizing up his opponents, and looking at the strategic situation from their perspective. Napoleon may have broken free of the established orthodoxies of military strategy, but he understood that old, Frederick the Great style of warfare intimately. Remember, he was raised at a military academy, educated in the art of war using the same concepts and tomes of theory as every other professional officer. Bonaparte used that knowledge to get inside his opponent's head and subvert their expectations. He also made extensive use of misdirection and outright deception. At the height of his fortunes, many considered Bonaparte literally unbeatable, which turned his reputation for unpredictability into a major asset in and of itself. Even when his opponents were able to guess at his intentions or learn clues as to his plans, Bonaparte's well-known record of masking his movements and outfoxing enemy generals always loomed in the backs of their minds. What if this weakness on Napoleon's right flank is a trap? What if he knows I know it's a trap, and that's what he wants me to think? What if he knows that I know that he knows? You get the idea. Even Napoleon's most capable foes were constantly second-guessing their conclusions. Sometimes, opponents were too racked with doubt to take advantage of genuine French weaknesses or mistakes, or became too distracted by the legendary Napoleon in their own heads to deal with the man himself as he ran circles around their armies. When Napoleon launched an operation, it was almost impossible to guess at his intentions before his men were on the march and fighting had begun. There was only one predictable factor— a nearly universal constant that appeared in nearly all his plans. Napoleon always attacked if he was able. Which brings us to the fifth aspect I'd like to talk about. Aggressiveness. We've already seen some of the clearest examples of this tendency of his whole career. Think back to Alvinci's attempts to relieve the Siege of Mantua. The Army of Italy was outnumbered, fighting in strong defensive terrain, and their main strategic goal was to prevent the Austrians from reaching the city. If any scenario calls out for a conservative, defensive strategy, it's this one. And yet, Bonaparte took the offensive in both cases. Napoleon fundamentally believed in the power of the offensive. In his words, quote, When one has taken the offensive, it is necessary to maintain it to the last extremity. 
end quote. To modern ears, the idea of embracing the offensive as a universal ethos might sound reckless, or maybe even bloodthirsty. But this was the late 18th century. Modern-style mass armies of citizen soldiers were coming into being. These were powerful weapons, and their high morale made them particularly effective on the attack. As all of humanity learned so painfully during the First World War, it is frighteningly easy to stop a mass infantry assault dead in its tracks, as long as you have the right tools. But fortunately for Napoleon and his citizen soldiers, none of those tools would be invented until the late 19th century. This was the age of the offensive, and Napoleon was its foremost prophet. When you don't have to worry about your entire army being annihilated in an instant by some superweapon any time they attack, there are some significant advantages to adopting an aggressive posture. In any military operation, the attacking side usually has the initiative, meaning they act and their opponents react. That sounds obvious, but it has profound implications. The side with the initiative has a great deal of control over how the campaign unfolds, including when and where battles are fought. Once he seized the initiative, Napoleon generally used it to create the most unfavorable conditions possible for the enemy army, then forced them to fight a battle. His favorite scenario for a campaign was what Napoleonic historians have labeled the strategy of the central position. In this strategy, he would try to create a situation in which the enemy forces were divided and his forces were concentrated and closer to the enemy columns than the enemy columns were to each other. Then he would send smaller detachments to engage each enemy force, stalling them and preventing them from uniting. This would leave the main body of the French army free to engage the isolated parts of the enemy force one by one. The strategy of the central position enabled Napoleon to eat his opponents in small digestible chunks, rather than trying to swallow them whole. We've already seen Napoleon use this strategy several times during the First Italian Campaign. Think of how many times the Austrians divided their forces, and Napoleon moved heaven and earth to keep them apart and concentrate his whole army against one column for a decisive battle. That's the strategy of the central position at work. Fortunately for Napoleon, the Austrians kept dividing their forces and giving him new opportunities to refine this technique. He would come back to it again and again during his career particularly in tough campaigns against numerically superior enemies, where it was often effective at evening the odds. If I had to pick out a single one of Napoleon's methods and call it his signature strategy, it would be this, the strategy of the central position. If you'll recall all the way back in episode 25, this was essentially Napoleon's plan for his very first operation as an army commander driving a wedge between the Piedmontese and Austrian armies, then turning on the isolated Piedmontese. Forgive the spoiler, he followed a very similar plan in his last campaign, trying and failing to find the central position between the British and Prussian armies in the fields of Belgium in 1815. The last aspect I'd like to highlight is almost a caveat on the first five, improvisation. Bonaparte was a meticulous planner, and he had favorite strategies, like the strategy of the central position. But he was almost always happy to throw all his arrangements out the window if circumstances demanded. As Napoleon himself put it, quote, 
unhappy is the general who comes onto the field of battle with a system. End quote. Bonaparte always tried to keep his options open, giving himself the freedom to take opportunities where he found them. He avoided fully committing to a course of action until he was sure of victory. His plans at the beginning of a campaign often bore little resemblance to the actual course of the fighting. Think back to the Arcole phase of the campaign. Napoleon's first idea was to ambush Alvinci's advance guard. When that failed, he pulled an entirely new plan out of thin air, throwing together that audacious march around the Austrian flank in the space of a few days. Then, when the attack on Arcole stalled during the first two days of combat, he once again completely shifted strategies, drafting an entirely new plan the night before the third day of battle, which ultimately led to victory. The military historian Owen Connolly nicknamed Napoleon the Scrambler, which I think is apt. Of course, none of this is to say that Bonaparte went to war unprepared, or that he was an incompetent planner. Napoleon's constant improvisation came from a belief in strategic flexibility and faith in his own instincts and judgment. He chose to scramble. It wasn't forced on him by any personal flaw. Before we put a bow on this discussion, I want to say that Napoleon did not descend from heaven as a fully formed military genius who delivered victories directly from his brain to the French people. Just because we've spent so much time focusing on Napoleon's personal attributes as a strategist doesn't mean we're adopting the so-called great man view of history. As I hope you've seen during the early episodes of the show, a lot of different intellectual influences coalesced to make Napoleon who he was. His family, his military education, the Enlightenment, classical history, the legacy of the Corsican War of Independence, and his experiences during the Revolution, to name just a few. None of his accomplishments were achieved alone. Without his remarkable subordinates and the tenacious rank-and-file soldiers of the French army, and of course a lot of luck, Napoleon would have been a nobody. Bonaparte and the Revolutionary Army were a perfect match. Its strengths complemented Napoleon's, and compensated for his weaknesses, and vice versa. It's hard to imagine an army better suited to fight the way Napoleon wanted to fight, and it's hard to imagine a commander better tailored to tame a rowdy revolutionary army and turn it into a weapon that could shake all of Europe. When Napoleon took command of the Army of Italy in 1796, it was like placing a perfect tool in the hands of a master craftsman. But of course, Napoleon himself was a product of that army, not some outside influence that swept in to lead it to destiny. He was merely the best of a large crop of officers who all shared a lot of common attributes. I've tried to highlight some of the best of Napoleon's subordinates, and hopefully I've given you some idea of the fact that this was a remarkable generation of men. Napoleon was simply the most remarkable among them. So, hopefully now you understand why we spent almost nine full episodes going over all the details of the First Italian Campaign. This is the time and place Napoleon learned to be a general. When he crossed over the Alps into Piedmont in the spring of 1796, he was nervous and mostly untested. Just another political general, with a rank much higher than his record deserved. He emerged on the other side of the Alps in Austria one year later as a figure we can recognize as Napoleon Bonaparte. 
When he signed the Peace of Leoben, Napoleon already had more in common with the man he would become, who ruled half of Europe, than he did with the jittery nobody who had taken command only a year earlier. It was a remarkable transformation and had profound consequences. Now that he'd finally done what he came to do and pierced Austria's soft underbelly, France was at peace once again, and peacetime brings its own set of challenges for any ambitious soldier. Next time, we'll see Napoleon try to navigate those challenges and take a look at the wider implications of France's peace with Austria. Until then, thanks for listening. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.